So, um, a request. Joel, can you cut to the wide shot, please, for our friends online? Everybody else, could you stand? Please stand. Turn around to the camera. It's directly in the center in the back. Wave to our friends at home. I assume they're waving back, but I really can't tell you for sure. <laughs> Thanks. <clears throat> so we are smack dab in the season of Pentecost, <clears throat> the season during which we are reminded that we have been given the Holy Spirit and that we await the return of Christ. The season of Pentecost begins on Pentecost Sunday, which happens 50 days after Easter. And then it goes all the way into the last Sunday before Advent, which leads us into Christmas, and that Sunday is known as Christ the King Sunday, or the Return of Christ Sunday. Life lived in this tension between these two times means that um, what we know about the giving of the Holy Spirit, what we know about where we're headed with the return of Christ is to shape us in our relationships with God and our relationship with the world. While we are caught in between Pentecost, the giving of the Spirit, and the return of Christ, we depend on, we rely on, we draw upon the life and the energy of the work in the presence of the Holy Spirit in our lives and in our world. And that is something that the Apostle Paul knows a lot about, as we're going to see in our passage today. In this week's passage, Paul is on his way to Jerusalem. He's a bit of a, in a rush to get there. He, too, is caught in between the coming of the Spirit at Pentecost and Christ's return, and he knows he has work yet to do. In his rush to get to Jerusalem, he decides to bypass stopping at Ephesus, which he might have liked to have done. Instead, he sails on to the city of Miletus, and when they get to Miletus, which is about three days' travel from the city of Ephesus, he sends for the he sends for the uh, elders, the leadership of the church in Ephesus. In verse 18, they arrive. Then Paul, in verse 18, gives them his famous last words. For them. Um, he will say, Paul will say many more things in the book of Acts, but this is the last time they will hear from him, and he knows this. This speech can be broken down into three major sections and a benediction. The first section, verses 18 to 21, is about Paul's life and ministry in the past, what he has done, how he has lived among them. And then each section is marked after that by the words, and now, or now, in the NIV. The second section, verses 22 to 24, is about the Holy Spirit's work in his life, what the Spirit was doing in the present. This is where we're going to focus most of our time this morning. I'm not going to walk through everything that happens in this speech. There's a lot there. But this is where I feel like God wants us to spend some time. The third section, verses 25 to 31, contains Paul's admonitions and encouragement to the leaders from the church in Ephesus for the future, the past, present, and future. And then finally, there's a bit of a benediction in verses 32 to 35. In each section, whether Paul is talking about the past or the present or the future, in each section, Paul uses himself or alludes to his own past and work he has done as a model for the Ephesian leaders in the Ephesian church to follow. This echoes several other places in our New Testaments where Paul does this sort of thing, most notably perhaps 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 1, where Paul says, imitate me as I imitate Christ. Follow me as I follow Christ. And this is the way it's been done for 2,000 years. We do have access to Jesus in the pages of the Gospels, yes. We can watch Jesus and what he does, but 
really the impact often is knowing someone who knows Jesus, who follows Jesus, and they become examples to us. Paul is simply using that idea. Throughout his speech, Paul's example says to them over and over, this is how I have lived, now I want you to go out and do likewise. Imitate me as I am seeking to imitate Christ. There are several ways we could imitate Christ and imitate Paul, then Christ, through this speech in Acts chapter 20. But I'm going to focus, as I said, on the the nature and the work of the Holy Spirit in Paul's life. And sometimes Paul is very direct. He clearly names the Spirit is doing this or that. Other times, Paul assumes or implies the work of the Spirit, and not specifically mentioning it. Near the end of his earthly life, Jesus himself had some famous last words. He, too, gave us what we call the farewell discourse. In the Gospel of John, verse chapters 14 to 17, he says there in uh, chapter 14, verse 16, And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another advocate to help you and be with you forever, the Spirit of truth. The world cannot accept him because it neither sees him nor knows him, but you know him, for he lives with you and will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. This is our good news for the week. And the good news that lies beneath Paul's words to the Ephesian elders, Jesus has not left us as orphans. He has given us his Holy Spirit. Jesus has not left us as orphans. He has given us the Holy Spirit. You know, our news feeds today can be uh, filled with examples of people whose private lives are inconsistent with their their public uh, persona. Christian and non-Christian alike. I don't even have to name, I actually thought about naming a few, but I don't even have to do that because they're all over the news. You could probably come up with three or four people right off the top of your head who fit this life of inconsistency between their public persona and their private lives. These people are inconsistent in their character, but Paul is consistent. In the opening lines of his speech, he says, you know how I lived the whole time I was with you. From the first day I came into the province of Asia, you saw me up close and personal. You know who I was. You know who I am. You know how I lived the whole time I was with you, not just when I was up in front of people. You know me. This kind of consistency is the work of the Holy Spirit. Paul is transformed, and he is an ever-transforming person. Paul is transformed and an ever-transforming person. He is on the journey, as we say, under our touchstone of transformation. He is on the journey toward Christiformity. And becoming more Christiform people is simply not something you and I can do all on our own. We need an advocate. We need a helper. The words that Jesus used to describe the Spirit. Jesus did not leave Paul or any of us as orphans. He has given us his Holy Spirit to dwell within us, to shape us, to guide us, and to transform us. It's also clear, uh, even from this uh, speech here, that that, uh, the Spirit has gifted Paul as a speaker, as a preacher, as a communicator of the good news. He has emboldened him to preach the good news about Jesus to others. And so Paul says he has never hesitated to speak the truth of God's will to Jews or Gentiles. He has always called upon both Jew and Gentile to repent. And again, this is the work of the Spirit behind the scenes, transforming us, empowering us, and giving us the spiritual gifts necessary to do the work we are called to do for the kingdom. But now I want us to zero in on uh, a more explicit references to the Holy Spirit, the work and presence of the Spirit in Paul's life. Verses 22 to 24, we read this. 
And now, compelled by the Spirit, I am going to Jerusalem, not knowing what will happen to me there. I only know that in every city the Holy Spirit warns me that prison and hardships are facing me. However, I consider my life worth nothing to me. My only aim is to finish the race and complete the task the Lord Jesus has given me, the task of testifying to the good news of God's grace. Because Christ Jesus has not left Paul as an orphan, but has given him his Holy Spirit, Paul is very much aware and in tune with the work and the power of the Spirit in his life. And now, he says, compelled by the Holy Spirit. Compelled by the Holy Spirit. What does it mean to be compelled by the Spirit? We get a better sense of this when we consider that more literally the phrase could be translated bound by the Spirit or held captive by the Spirit. Almost as if we don't have a choice. Now, I think we do have a choice. I think we always have a choice to obey and submit to the Spirit or to reject what the Spirit is leading us to do. Just sometimes... Sometimes the nudging, the voice, the compulsion of the Spirit is so strong, you don't feel like you have a choice. I have to do this. It's almost like uh, Paul, left to his own uh, devices here, might choose not to go to Jerusalem, but instead he feels compelled to go. I'm no apostle, but I can tell you the only reason I went into pastoral ministry is because I felt the Spirit compelled me to do so, and almost as if I could do no other. And so I went into pastoral ministry kicking and screaming, and some days I still do. The same root word used here for compelled or bound can be used to speak of husbands and wives being bound together as one, or as prisoners held captive. I'll let you continue on with the metaphors there. It's a powerful picture either way you look at it. It's a powerful picture of what life in the Spirit can be like. So intimate, so vital, so all-consuming a partnership that we are bound to the Spirit. Paul adds that uh, although he is compelled by the Spirit to go to Jerusalem, he does not yet know what's going to happen when he gets there. I only know that in every city the Holy Spirit warns me that prison and hardships are facing me, he says in verse 23. There are two realities here that I, I don't want us to miss. First, the Spirit leads Paul into some very difficult circumstances. Though he warns him as he goes. And in fact, this warning thing will happen in the very next chapter. Paul will stay with his old friend Philip, the evangelist, in Caesarea. And while he's there, a prophet named Agabus will come down from Judea and will warn Paul and will bind his hands and say, if you go to Jerusalem, the religious authorities are going to bind you like this and hand you over to the Gentiles. You see, following the Spirit's leading does not mean that everything is roses and sunshine and unicorns. You know the story. This eventually leads to Paul's death. Perhaps you've, others, you've heard others say this, or maybe you've said something like this yourself. I thought this is what God wanted me to do, but it's so hard. I must have misunderstood what God wanted. Did I misunderstand? Did I... And that tells us something. That tells us that perhaps our theology is off a few degrees from where it needs to be. Just because life is hard, that does not mean we didn't hear the Spirit correctly. Sometimes, especially in times of crisis, following the leading of the Spirit can be hard and painful and full of uncertainty. 
So the next time you feel like God's Spirit has nudged you and taken you in some place, then I want you to realize that it doesn't mean, if it's difficult, it doesn't mean that God did not lead you. That's the first reality. Paul knows that prison and hardship and uncertainty await him, and yet he goes anyway. Why? Because the Spirit compels him to do so. Because Paul knows he does not go as an orphan. He goes as one in whom the Spirit dwells. The other reality at work here is this little phrase, in every city or in every town. In every city, the Holy Spirit warns him. In every city, wherever he goes, the Spirit is with Paul, speaking to him and leading him. Friends, we need a very robust theology of the presence, power, and work of the Spirit. A trust that even in the hard times, the Spirit is with us. We need a very robust theology of the presence, power, and work of the Spirit. A trust that even in hard times, the Spirit is with us to accompany us, to encourage us, to empower us, to fill us. As the psalmist puts it in Psalm 139, Where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I go up to the heavens, you are there. If I make my bed in the depths, you are there. If I rise on the wings of the dawn, if I settle on the far side of the sea, even there your hand will guide me. Your right hand will hold me fast. If I say, surely the darkness will hide me and the light become night around me, even the darkness will not be dark to you. The light will shine like the day, for darkness is as light to you. Wherever you go, the Spirit is there. Paul continues in verse 24, however, I consider my life worth nothing to me. My only aim is to finish the race and complete the task the Lord Jesus has given me, the task of testifying to the good news of God's grace. Paul is compelled by the Spirit, warned by the Spirit, accompanied by the Spirit, and he is emboldened by the Spirit to risk everything, even his own life, to do the work God has given him. In the mid-third century, a plague broke out in the ancient world. No one knows exactly what this plague was. They have ideas, but they don't know. What they do know is it's very deadly. The plague lasted from 250 to 262 A.D., and at its deadliest, it took the lives of 5,000 people each day. In A.D. 252, the plague hit the Roman city of Carthage, The officials, the government officials, terrified of the possible consequences, quickly set about burning all the dead bodies and taking anyone who was infected and banishing them outside the walls of the city. The church also acted quickly. The bishop of Carthage, Cyprian, called the church together and exhorted them to behave differently than the governing officials, to be willing to risk their lives in caring for the sick and the forgotten and the rejected. Cyprian chose the Apostle Paul's companion Epaphroditus as an example and an inspiration. In Paul's letter to the Philippians chapter 2, Paul explains that Epaphroditus became ill and almost died in trying to do the work of the gospel. He writes there in verse 29, So then, welcome him in the Lord with great joy. Epaphroditus, welcome him in the Lord with great joy and honor. People like him because he almost died for the work of Christ. He risked his life to make up for the help you yourself could not give me. The Greek word translated as risked his life in verse 30 became the name of those third century Christians who followed the example of Epaphroditus. That Greek word was parabolani, the parabolani. They began a movement that lasted for several hundred years and was known the world over in that part of the world as a people who were willing to risk everything for the cause of Christ. 
The Parabolani, like the Apostle Paul, were compelled by the Spirit of God to do the hard things, to take risks for the sake of loving others into the kingdom of God. The Spirit compels. The Spirit warns. The Spirit accompanies. The Spirit emboldens. And the Spirit transforms. Verse 24 again, Paul says, My only aim is to finish the race and complete the task the Lord Jesus has given me. The desire of Paul's heart is to finish the race. In 2015, a woman named Kendall Schler, that's her in the middle there, finished, in first place, a marathon in St. Louis. She was awarded the medal. She qualified for a spot in the Boston Marathon, and she had her picture taken with uh, Jackie Joyner-Kersey, the three-time gold medal Olympist. About 20 minutes later, however, it was discovered she had cheated. That, in fact, she'd only slipped into the race after the last checkpoint, and run. In fact, they don't even know that she was trying to win. She just was further along than she thought she was. And she slipped into the race, and she came across as the winner. Obviously, all the uh, awards were taken away. She was disqualified for the Boston Marathon, but she still has the picture with Jackie Joyner-Kersey. Not only did she not win the race, not only did she not finish the race, she didn't even run the race but not the Apostle Paul. He wants to run it, he wants to finish it, and if he's honest with you, he wants to win it. And he wants the same for the rest of us. Philippians 3, verses 12 to 14, he puts it this way. I want to know Christ. Yes, to know the power of his resurrection and participation in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, and so somehow attaining to the resurrection of the de- from the dead. Not that I've already obtained all this or have already arrived at my goal, but I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. Brothers and sisters, I do not consider myself yet to have taken hold of it, but one thing I do, forgetting what is behind and straining toward what is ahead, I press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. Forgetting what is behind and straining toward what is ahead, I press on toward the goal to win the prize. Or 2 Timothy 4, 7, as he reflects on the end of his life, Paul writes this, I have fought the good fight, I have finished the race, I have kept the faith. Now compare Kendall Schleyer, that cheating runner I showed you, with this guy, Alex Hanold. Alex is a 33-year-old, or at this time was 33-year-old in 2017. He climbed El Capitan, 3,200 feet, up the wall, no ropes, nothing, no safety, nothing, just hands and feet. 3,200 feet. There's a movie about this. I I discovered it on Disney Plus last night. It's called Free Solo. It won an Oscar. It's a great movie. My palms were sweating all through it, and right now as I look at him, they're sweating. This is a guy who is committed. He is so committed to climbing that he has chosen to live his life with as few distractions as possible, although he did just get engaged in January, so let's see how this works out. He's done done everything he can so he can pursue his dream, his passion. He lives in a van most of the year so he can travel and be wherever he wants to climb. He says of his passion and vision, I want to climb in the best places in the world, and that's my focus. So I'm willing to give up having stability, having a shower, having whatever in order to climb the way that I want. I am probably more intentional with the way I live my life than virtually anybody. I have made clear choices about what I find value in, what risks I'm willing to take. I am doing exactly what I love to do. 
It's very easy for someone sitting on the couch at home to condemn it as crazy and stupid, but I can justify all my choices. Can you say the same about your life? To which I say, nope, I can't. Or in this week when so many have poured forth tributes on the life of Congressman John Lewis and his struggle for civil rights. People on both sides of the aisle have noted Lewis's perseverance in the face of suffering with former President George W. Bush referring to him as an American saint, a believer willing to give up everything, even life itself, to bear witness to the truth that drove him all his life. Former President Barack Obama cited the first chapter of the book of James and noted that Lewis was, quote, a man of pure joy and unbreakable perseverance. See, these, these images, these last two, are images that I think the Apostle Paul might identify with in his own single-minded determination to finish the race and to win the prize. But what does it take to get to that place? What does it take to finish, to win? 1 Corinthians 9, verses 24 and 25, Paul talks a bit about the process he engages in in order to finish the race and win the prize. He says there, Do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one gets the prize? Run in such a way as to get the prize. Everyone who competes in the games goes into strict training. They do it to get a crown that will not last, but we do it to get a crown that will last forever. Everyone who competes in the games goes into strict training. Training. Now, it would be easy to think that Paul is all about training himself by sheer self-will and determination in his own strength. But the apostle of grace himself, the one who knew at the core of his being that new life in Christ is a gift, not something we can earn, he knows that even our training, even our discipline, finds its energy and its direction from the Holy Spirit. God has not left us as orphans. He has given us his Holy Spirit in and through whom we are trained and transformed. The spiritual practices that we give ourselves to, prayer, reading scripture, fasting, service, worship, community, these are not disciplines through which we attain maturity in Christ by our own efforts. These are practices engaged in partnership with the Holy Spirit who trains and transforms us into Christiform people through them. These are not practices engaged uh, in order to, to attain maturity in Christ, engaged by our own efforts and will and self-discipline. They are engaged in partnership with the Spirit who trains us and transforms us into more Christiform people. The point of all this is that God has not left you or I to struggle on our own. He has given us one another in the body of Christ. He has given us His Word through which He teaches, rebukes, and corrects us. And He has given us His Holy Spirit to meet us where we are and to make us something more than we are. God in Christ has given us the Holy Spirit to meet us where we are and to make us something more than we are. We need to know and trust in the presence and power of the Holy Spirit so that we know that we do not have to do this alone. Whether we are an apostle or an accountant, prophet or a plumber, a missionary or a manager, a priest or a parent. We need to know this because the person work of the Holy Spirit is how you and I experience God's presence. It is the way God is present to us. My invitation to you is to sit with this passage for a few minutes this week, 
read it out loud a few times prayerfully and ask the Holy Spirit to speak to you. I believe the power of the Holy Spirit to speak to you. I believe in your ability to hear the Spirit speak. Ask the Spirit to compel you. And so Paul, if Paul so often represents himself as an example for the rest of us to follow, as you read through Acts 20, 18-35, in what ways is the Spirit disrupting you and giving you clarity about ways you might imitate Paul's life? Just in those verses. In what ways is the Spirit confirming you the work already being done? Read the passage over out loud several times prayerfully. See what words or phrases stand out to you. Hold on to those words. Turn them into prayer and ask God to show you what they mean for you. All of this is in the Bible app live event as well. Ask if there are something, some steps that God would want you to take. Remember, the Spirit is always with us and always speaking. We just need to learn to hear and to receive and to step out in faith. What might God say to you? How might the Spirit of God compel you in the days and weeks to come? Would you pray with me as we close? <clears throat> God in heaven, we thank you for the gift of your Spirit. Whatever our tradition is, we may, we may or may not know how powerful your Spirit is. We may or may not be accustomed to trying to live in step with your Spirit, but we know it is your desire for us. And so I pray for us as a people, for us as individuals and households, God, that we would rediscover the presence and power of your Spirit this week that you would speak through the Apostle Paul and others, Lord God, of your work in our lives and the, of your desire to do work in our lives and help us, Lord God, to learn what it means to yield to your Spirit, to re-experience your Spirit, to begin to see you at work around us every day. And we commit ourselves to you, God, and we ask that you meet us <clears throat> and that you transform us. In Jesus' name, amen. <clears throat>